0: To bow again as we step into the text uh, this morning just to pray. You know, Father, we live in a world where there seems to be more collateral damage and casualties to the chaos of what's going on than we could hardly even imagine. Those casualties are all from, from politics to the schools, Father, to our individual lives, to our families. And Father, we live in difficult times where there is afflictions and sometimes persecution and chaos on a level that we may not feel like we've ever experienced before, and yet our experience is simply a microcosm of the chaos around the world. And we need to recognize, in spite of the challenges that we're facing, and sometimes it feels overwhelming, there are people groups and faith communities around the world who have suffered far more than we ever have. We ask that you will help us to understand our own walk with you and continue to to allow your spirit to cultivate within us a responsive and humble heart that is willing to be teachable and to listen to your voice. And for all of this, as we step into the scriptures this morning, ask for your wisdom and your guidance, and we give you thanks in Christ's name, amen. Well, one of the things that you've probably noticed over the last five years is, as I sort of hinted at in my prayer, is the amount of collateral damage and casualties that have happened, especially in the Christian world. Uh, I was noticing some of the uh, Christians who have been abandoning the faith, who have stepped away from both their calling and their occupation and have said, kind of done with this. For instance, uh, one of the more prominent individuals that you might be familiar with is Paul Maxwell who is a professor at Moody Bible and a writer of Desiring God who uh, renounced his faith uh, right in the middle of the journey. Uh, as part of his statements after he sort of abandoned his walk with God, said, what I really miss is the connection with people, Maxwell said on an Instagram feed. What I've discovered is that I'm ready to connect again, and I'm kind of ready not to be angry anymore. I love you guys, and I love all the friendships and support I've built here, and I think it's important to say that I'm just not a Christian anymore, and it feels really good, I'm really happy. Hard to imagine, isn't it? There's another statement, uh, 2019, Joshua Harris, who is the author of the controversial Christian bestseller, Kiss Dating Goodbye, sent shockwaves through the community, the Christian community at least, after he had published an Instagram post announcing, I'm not a Christian anymore. Many people tell him there's a different way to practice faith, and I want to remain open to this, but I'm not there now. Marty Sampson, who was former Hillsong singer and songwriter, posted on Instagram, time for some real talk. I'm genuinely losing my faith, and it doesn't bother me. You know, the, the, the problem in life is that it's shocking to hear that people have lived their Christian life for so many years all of a sudden now just ditching the whole thing. Uh, some of you may feel it even more personally because you know family or friends who have been in this walk with Christ for a length of time and then they just seem to a switch goes off in their head and it's kinda like I'm tired of this stuff anymore. It doesn't make any sense. They're, they're just something that doesn't connect. And so they just seemed to keep drifting and drifting to the point where they just go, I feel like a hypocrite, I'm just done. I'm not doing this anymore. I I don't know of any other text that may speak to this in part than the one that we're dealing with this morning. And uh, it won't be able to solve all your issues if you think about this issue, but I do think there's some things to contemplate, not only uh, to try to get a context on how this could happen, But more importantly, that we need to guard our own hearts and cultivate the kind of heart that is willing to respond to God's word in a way that sometimes we don't. Otherwise, we may forget that we can be as vulnerable as anybody to the realities of others that we just shake our head and say, how could this happen? In fact, in a group that's of this size, it's possible that some of you, even in your own minds, have have enough serious questions about your walk with Christ and what difference it makes that you may be even asking some of those questions yourself this morning. That You're not sure about really the whole substance of this because you've done this for so long and you're not sure you can see the profound difference we keep hearing it's supposed to have and I don't know where I'm going with it. Either way, the text that we're dealing with in Mark chapter 4 uh, is really important to look at this. As you know, we call it the parable of the sower, but it's really, in a sense, a combination of the parable of the seeds and the soil. Uh, the sower is part of the equation, but not the centerpiece. We are focusing on Mark 4, 5, and 6. I hope you guys corrected the spelling or the, the uh, chapter thing up there, but it's uh, Mark chapter 4, 5, and 6 which says, other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil and when the sun rose it was scorched and since it had no root it withered away. Jesus' explanation of that comes down in Mark chapter 4 verse 16 and 17 which, where he explains it this way. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who when they hear the word immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves but endure it for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Now there's probably more questions about this text than we've got answers for. Uh, There's questions that come to us to mean, okay, is this just talking about the gospel or is there other things involved? Can a person really receive something and have it and then lose it because then that in our mind would say, is it possible to lose our salvation once we've put our faith and trust in Jesus? Is this relate to Christians after the gospel? Is this something that can happen to me sitting here on Sunday morning where I hear a message preached and the same kind of thing can happen to me? Is there things in here that really threaten our walk with the Lord in terms of are we going to make it? Am I going to be faithful to the end, or is there something that's going to come along that blindsides me so severely that I could be one of those casualty reports that you hear on the news? The problem is, is we're probably way more vulnerable than we think, and yet we've got more resources than we really understand. And, and in all of this, we can either create a Christianity where God sort of does all the work and i just gonna float around because I've trusted Jesus and I don't have to worry about anything, or I see the other side where I have tremendous responsibility in this walk and sometimes I can become my own worst enemy. It's not anybody else's fault, it's not God's fault, it's not the culture, it's not the moral decline in our culture, it's not politics, but it's me. When you're dealing with a parable that deals with the internal realities of our heart and the soil, There's very little else that's included here except in this particular text. The the exposition in verse 5 and 6 is really the illustration, the picture. The explanation is how it implements, how it looks in real life, in the hearts and and the struggles and the minds of men and women who have received something that seems so profound and so powerful, and yet something changes inside of them. I want to just take a couple of slides to connect the the points on here because sometimes it may seem obvious, other times it may not. In Mark 4, verse 5 and 6, it tells us that other seed fell on rocky ground, which is paralleled in verse 16. These are the ones sown on rocky ground. So one takes the perspective, uh, 16 and 17, the explanation from the, the person from the human struggle of figuring this out, the, the exposition of it talks about the seed. It uses nature and sowing seeds in the ground as sort of the focal point of how God's word actually works and operates. Just, there's three times in this particular text where it explains and then Jesus, uh, where it expounds on this and then explains where the word immediately is used. In verse four, uh, verse five and six it says, and immediately it, being the seed, sprang up, with the condition that it had no depth of soil. And in verse 16 it says, when they hear the word, and immediately it sprang up, but did not have any depth of soil. Verse five and six, and when the sun rose would be parallel to the idea of when tribulation or persecution arises. The sun is something, at least for plants, is absolutely necessary, just like water and other nutrients are. But if there's certain things that are not part of the sustainability of a plant, the sun just ends up scorching it. One could make the argument that things like affliction and persecution are inevitable realities in the Christian life and they become the greatest indication as to whether our roots are really dug into Christ or not. We'll look at that as we go. But those are as inevitable as the sun coming up and as necessary as they are for plants, it is also deadly for those that don't have the right soil. It also tells us very simply that in 5 and 6 that because it doesn't have any depth of soil, it was scorched and it withers away. Literally, it dries up. There's nothing left. In 16 and 17, it talks about not the... the the root that's in themselves, in the person. There's no root in them in terms of the truth. There's nothing to tag onto. There's nothing to anchor itself. It can't get attached to anything. And so it endures for a while. The word endure means to suffer something. And so the picture literally has about it the idea is that the person is kind of enduring the presence of the seed, but it's not attached to anything meaningful. We'll talk about that in a minute. And so when persecution and affliction come up, it says they immediately fall away, and that's kind of the the parallel to the idea is that it withers. Now, I wanna talk about probably four things on both sides of the fence, and we'll walk through it as best we can and as quickly as we can. First of all is the possibility of life, and that's the seed that's scattered. I think incorrectly we call it the parable of the sower, but the point is the seed doesn't get into any of the soil unless there's someone scattering the seed. In Jesus' ministry, he is the ultimate one sowing the seeds of the kingdom. He is going around, as we see earlier in Mark, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And he's calling Israel to repentance because something's wrong with them. I mean, they might convince themselves that life is pretty normal. They have their religion, they have their routines, they have their business, they're operating, the kids go to school. They have their normal lifestyles and everything is going the way it ought to. And then there's this person named Jesus coming in calling Israel to repent it might seem as odd as if Jesus walked in here and said you all have to repent you're you don't realize how desperate the situation is we'd scratch our heads and went I don't get it I thought I had a good week I don't know see what the problem is I'm being responsible with my family I'm being responsible with my work I'm trying to do the best I can what are you calling us to repentance for But Jesus obviously knows something about the spiritual condition of Israel that they don't see themselves. And that is that they're out of sync with God and he's calling them to repent, to restore their relationship with their father. And at the heart of this, Jesus has the courage to step into an environment that seems pretty normal to everybody else, but he knows something's wrong. Now if I parallel that, I want to say that for most of us, if we sort of bringing it into a New Testament context, many of us here have responded to the gospel and we have believed in Jesus. Or I would put it more particularly, we believed in the credibility of who God is and we've put faith in the message of God in the person of Christ. We believe that he died because of our sin and was crucified because God's wrath is going to land on all those who don't find shelter in his son. And that if we don't trust Christ, we're facing a Christless eternity. Basically, good people don't get to heaven. They're not gonna go to a better place that they're doomed to a Christless hell and separation from God if they don't respond to the message of Jesus. And so most of us would understand that part of it. We'd say, yeah, I've trusted Jesus, but let me ask you something. Do Do you believe in the gospel enough that you're spreading that seed to other people? See, it's one thing to believe it selfishly because I'm going to go to heaven, I've trusted Jesus, I've got my spiritual insurance, but there's so many Christians who've never scattered that seed to lost friends and family. They've never talked to their coworkers, the people they go to school with. And it sort of raises the question is, do we believe in it just for the benefit that we get, or do we see the catastrophic reality that people are facing, and we're willing to spread that seed ourselves as Jesus did to people around us that don't know Jesus. And it sort of raises the question, how much do we really believe in this sacrifice that Christ made for us if we never cast that seed into someone else's life? And that's where maybe the affliction and the persecution he's gonna talk about tends to ebb at our own heart and soul, because it tends to shut us down more times than we're willing to admit when it comes to the opportunities that God gives to us. So it ought to give us a pause for thought. But the possibility here is that there's someone, like Jesus, who believes in the power of the seed so much that he scatters it into other people's lives. The potential for this is the seed sown. It can't make a difference if people don't hear. We live in a world where people are always raising this, what about the person in China that doesn't hear about it? I, I think we have to reverse that. You know, it used to be when I was growing up, what about the person in the deep areas of Africa that don't hear? Well, they've probably heard more than we have, frankly. We've sent so many missionaries out, there's so many organizations out there, there's so many church plants going out in third world countries and everywhere else. Yes, there are unreached people groups, but the biggest one is right here in America. And so the reality is, is we've got this massive human community out there that don't know Jesus. And the question is, do we believe in the power of this seed so we are going to be part, personally part, of that venture of trying to rescue people from a Christless eternity in the wrath of God? But the potential of this seed is that the power is in the seed. The, the seed is sown. I remember when I was growing up, we used to do these little experiments. You know, we'd, we were in elementary school, and we had this thing about plants and whatever. So we'd come home and take a paper towel and put water in it, stick it in a glass, and then we'd put seeds in it around the edge and put water in there a little bit and tried to see what happens. And believe it or not, even though there wasn't always dirt in there, we would often get something sprouting. They would, they would, after a few days, they would start sprouting a little plant and little roots would come out, and, but we knew it wasn't gonna last unless we like, transplanted it into some dirt. It just wasn't gonna survive in there by itself. And as I, I think about this whole idea of the power of the seed, I wanna remind you that the power of spreading the seed is not in our presentation. I think we've overly complicated the reality of this And it basically says, I don't believe in the power of gospel itself to save people, so I have to know all the answers, and I have to have a slick presentation, I have to have a marketing strategy, and if I don't have those things, people will never come to Christ. And there's a danger in that, and I get the point of it. Paul said, I do all things for all people, that some may come to Christ. But sometimes we rely way more on our ability to communicate it than the power of the gospel itself. And so one of the things I wanna ask you is, do you still believe in the power of the gospel to, to save people? And if I was really being snitty this morning, I would say, can you prove that by telling me a story of someone that you've shared Jesus with recently? It doesn't do much good if we believe it and never share it. I can be totally convinced how important the gospel is for myself, but never take any steps to communicate it with others because I don't know enough and I haven't got a presentation. I don't know what to say. How can you come to Jesus and not know what to say? That doesn't make sense. So what we're told here in this process is that the power is in the seed and it germinates. Now I know this isn't exactly the same, but I went hunting for sprouts this week. Not literally, but on the computer. And there's things like alfalfa sprouts. It's interesting when they talk about alfalfa sprouts that These things sprout and germinate. They're not big. They're just even in their infancy kind of thing. But they are loaded with nutrients in order to jumpstart a plant to help it grow. And, of course, these are the things that are are kind of our superfoods now. You know, if you eat this stuff, then you'll be healthier, stronger, faster, smarter. You'll be able to see again all kinds of great promises about what happens. But the idea is whether it's alfalfa sprouts or kale or whatever, we, we get the idea that it sprouts, and the text tells us that it's not the seed that sprouted, it sprouted a plant. It sprouted a, a little sprout that came out of it in order to germinate. There, there may be even some semblance of roots, but there's, in the text, there's nothing to anchor it to. There's no soil that it can attach itself to. And so what happens in this process is that the problem is if it sprouts up in this rocky area that it is, it may sprout, but it doesn't have the right nutrients to really take root and grow. And so the thing that it needs is the sun, but because there's nothing else there to sustain it, the sun just literally scorches it. It's really odd that the very thing that it needs is the very thing that kills it in the journey. And as you begin to understand the nature of this, the seed is what has the power to change, to bring forth life. It's not in the soil itself, the soil is important, but it's the seed that has the power of life, just like the gospel is. And the potential there is new life starts. Now I want to propose to you two ways you can look at how this applies to our life. I think it's impossible not to look at this as the gospel. When the gospel is preached, There's individuals who hear it, and what the text is basically going to say is there's some that seem like, wow, this is really a cool message, and they're going to respond to it. I think the other side that this basic principle of this text applies to is even God's word when it's preached on Sunday morning, or when we pick it up on Monday, is that the same kinds of things can happen. It's part of the nature of God's kingdom program as it works here. That every time I listen to the Word of God, every time I read the Word of God or listen to a podcast or read a devotional book or whatever it happens to be, I'm faced with the same reality that the seed is being planted in my heart. I hear it and I listen to it. But the danger even for us is that it can sound great. I can give a thumbs up to it. I can give a check mark. I can can be energized by the, the thought that's there, but it may not ever take root in my life. It's one of the dangers of preaching. Uh, This is why we try not to have too many things after the service, because the idea is we don't want something to come along and take away that seed that's been planted in your heart. Next week, we'll get into that a little bit more. But the the idea here is that I think this applies certainly to the gospel, and there's people that seem to respond to the gospel, and then after a while, they just ditch it. But it also applies to what you're hearing this morning. Is that it's easily something that can be sown in your hearts and never take root because your heart's not ready to receive it. There are, uh, let me try to illustrate this a little bit. What does it mean to receive it with joy? I mean, isn't receiving it receiving it? I mean, how how does that work? Well, sometimes you'd compare it to like a camp ministry. Kids go to camp and they're there for a whole week. They get out of, you know, camps now often are not requiring kids to bring electronic stuff, because if they do, they've lost them for the entire week. But the danger is, is we start thinking as camp as an artificial life form. Well, that's not reality, because when they come back, they're gonna have all their electronics and everything else, so if you go to camp and take all that away, now it's a fake environment. And kids are making decisions at the end of camp to trust Jesus, but you know, for a lot of them, it doesn't stick. They come back and they immediately put their headphones on and it's all gone and yet they went forward or they went around the campfire and they prayed with a counselor and they received Jesus. Then they come back and they get swamped and nothing seems to show for it. Sunday morning sermons, it could be along the lines where people at times have been really kind where they come up to me and they'll say, like did you follow me around this week? Like were you like talking to me? Like it sure felt like it. And I said, well, no, I don't have time to follow you around all week that's obviously the Spirit of God speaking to you. There's other situations. Uh, I love, you know, it used to be New Year's resolutions. You ever made a decision you're going to get in shape and try to get healthier, you know, all that kind of stuff? So you buy equipment or buy a gym membership, and you get into it for two weeks, and then it's kind of like, nuts, this is hard. And, and, like, shouldn't I have lost at least 20 pounds by the end of the first week? Like, I mean, what, why? that's not happening, so I feel like I'm wasting my time. And people will make decisions enthusiastically and start putting their energy into it, but as soon as they sort of get into the meat and potatoes and the real discipline that it takes to follow through on it, it's kind of like, you know, I haven't got time for this. This isn't going to work. People find this starting a new business. The issue is not often that they don't have what it takes to do it, but they get started on it, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, I have to do this and this and this and Well, I got to phone these people. Well, boy, I don't want to sound stupid and not know the you know I don't know all the things that I need to do. And often people talk themselves out of doing anything because they're afraid to fail, and they fail because they don't do anything. This is kind of what he's talking about here when he says there's individuals who receive it with joy. There's a lot of enthusiasm, but it never really takes root in their heart and in their mind. So it never becomes what I would call a deep-rooted conviction about how I need to live. It's just a really cool idea that I hope could take place in my life. And that can happen with the gospel. People can receive it, as it were, with joy. They seem to have it, and then all of a sudden it just flitters away. Now, the theological complexity of this gets enormous. We'll be here all day if we try to step into all of it. Well, I'll give you some perspective when we get finished. But the idea is, is that these individuals seem to receive the message of the Word or the Gospel. They seem to receive it with joy, and yet it never really takes root in their life. That seems to be the very clear, there's nothing there, And so then Jesus follows up is that the problem that this person is facing is affliction and and persecution. The affliction is a general term that just talks about trials and hardships and difficulties. And I will offer this to you is that sometimes that affliction is not external like persecution. It's internal. there's There's clutter and junk in a person's life and they talk about the power of Christ but they're not feeling it. That there's truths that they don't understand, and so there's this turmoil that goes on in their hearts, that they have a hard time accepting something because it doesn't make any sense. That this affliction sometimes is very much internal rather than external, and it's philosophical. It's everything like morality and the problem of evil, and how do I reconcile this if God is really good? If, if there's high-standing Christians like professors who've now abandoned their faith, is this thing even real? Well, how do I make sense of some of this? And, and sometimes this internal affliction that they go through because of the word of God really throws individuals for a tailspin and they don't know how to resolve it and they won't ask anybody for help. And sometimes even when they do, they won't, they just, they don't know how to embrace it. They don't know how to, to embrace it that way. I want you to notice in the text that even though it uses the word when, at least it does in the ESV, is that when affliction and persecution comes, there's no timeline set between the time there to receive this word with joy and when the affliction and persecution comes. So I will make the argument to you that this isn't just a week at camp come home and it all vaporizes and that could be it, but that's That's one way to look at it, but the other side is you could look at it as, hey, there's a professor at Moody that knew Jesus for 30 years, and all of a sudden now they've come to the conclusion that this is bogus, and I'm not not interested in this anymore. It doesn't catch my heart. There's nothing in there that I'm convinced of. So you can find people that this can be a one-week turnaround, or it can be... A 30-year journey where this has never taken root in their life, and all of a sudden they're tired of conforming to something that doesn't seem to make a real difference in their life, and they say, "I'm done." John Steingard, the Canadian Chris, uh, was with the Canadian Christian rock band and Hawk Nelson's lead vocalist. Announced on social media that I no longer believe in God, and he explained this, it didn't happen overnight. And I believe what happens in some people's lives is they seem to respond to the gospel. They do it with some enthusiasm, they conform to it, but they're kind of like okay, I got so many questions and still so many doubts that I don't know whether to believe this is actually true or not. And if that doesn't get resolved in their life, it just sort of adds to the pile of uncertainty that after years and years of dealing with it and never coming to a point that I'm just gonna have to trust God with this or the word responds to it in a way that they can accept, that after years and years of struggling with this unresolved stuff that they finally go, okay, I just can't do it anymore. They feel like they're conforming to an outward system that is empty inside. And I believe that's what the text is is telling us. There's some people who give this appearance that they've responded to to the gospel or the word. They'll conform it to various different lengths of time, but at some point when affliction comes, whether it's internal or whether it's persecution from others, they just go, you know... This has pushed me to the point where I've got to figure out whether I really believe this or not and I can't resolve that. I don't know if you remember in John 20, Jesus after the resurrection appeared to his disciples and they were obviously pretty ecstatic about the whole thing. Thomas didn't happen to be there and so he's gotten the wonderful placard nickname as Doubting Thomas because he told the disciples when Jesus first appeared he wasn't there and he, they came and were all excited and enthusiastic about Jesus being raised from the dead and he goes, oh, hang on guys, I'm not buying it. I said, unless I actually see Jesus and the wounds in his hands and the wounds in his side, I'm not buying this. You ever wonder what, what would have happened if Jesus never appeared to him again? I always thought, what if Jesus just decided not to appear to Thomas anymore? But Jesus comes to him, as often he'll come to us, and he says, all right Thomas, since you, get, you need proof, here it is, and Thomas sort of caves in humiliation and went, oh, okay, I get it. But the, but the problem is, is that if these kinds of afflictions in a sense are necessary because they help forge our decision to accept Christ. In fact, I think that what happens is that they really anchor that reality in our heart if there's any uncertainty at all or it drives us further away from it. If it really isn't rooted in anything. So then the final element says really there's the, the life that this seed is supposed to generate in a person through the gospel it's eternal life for just the preach word, I think it's the abundant life that Christ promised as we walk and live in intimacy with him. If it gets aborted, then, they, then the Greek word there is, it's scandalous. It's scandalous for the individual in their own heart because they go, I keep sort of pretending I'm committed to this thing and it doesn't work for me because it's never really taken root in my life and so it, this feels like an internal scandal and I can't live with this any longer. Obviously, when Christians abandon the faith and it becomes public news, that sort of becomes a scandal for the Christian community. Now, technically, the text doesn't say fall away from salvation or fall away, it falls away from the word. We don't actually know the full implications of all that. It's not just talking about moral failure where a person gets restored and back, and that's not the idea. This This is seed that was sown and it never takes root and never produces what it's supposed to. Do you remember the story in, in Matthew 28 where Jesus rose from the dead, the soldiers come back to the Pharisees and the scribes and are going like, This dude's gone? You know what, you, you know what they told him to do? Here's the story that you need to share with everybody that the disciples came in at night, stole the body, and now this idea of resurrection is part of their scheme, this little conspiracy to perpetrate this idea that Jesus raised from the dead. And some people will use that to discount the reality of the resurrection, but the rebuttal to that is very simple, is that all of these disciples ended up laying down their life for the resurrection of Jesus. Now if they actually came in and stole the body and hid it somewhere else, I don't know a person alive that if they knew something wasn't true that they'd lay down their life for it. If they're pushed under persecution and affliction, and they actually know that this is not true, they'll go, oh, Hang on, okay, I give up. It's not really true. We took the body and we hid it. I'm not giving up my life for something that I know it's not true. Now, people will die for a lie if they believe the lie is true. But I don't know anyone that will give up their life for something that they know isn't true. Now, the reason that's important is because I think what happens to people as they journey through the Christian life is they get to affliction or persecution and there's this turmoil inside and basically they come to the conclusion, I'm not sure this is true, I'm not dying for this. And so they abandon the faith rather than try to struggle through it, which they've probably been doing for years anyway. Let me give you an example of how I think we struggle with the faith. I read some stats this week. It came from Timothy Johnson, part of the Minnesota Church Ministries Association, but it came from Legionnaires ministries. 48% of evangelicals believe God changes. It's called process theology. It started a while back ago, but there's, that sort of stands against the idea that some people believe that Hebrews says God never changes. The opposite is, well, that God has to keep changing as culture and people make choices. God has to keep adapting, as it were, to keep up. 71% of evangelicals reject the doctrine of original sin. Now, I hate and love stats. I hate stats because to understand the context of where this was taken, who did they interview? You know, 71% of evangelicals? I bet you if I took a survey here, we wouldn't get that answer. But what it does is raise the question that we know in our culture that the the basic fundamental beliefs that Christians have had for years are starting to shift. Or they're being recast or re-exegeted so that we now understand them in light of our culture now. 43% of evangelicals reject the deity of Christ. Eh, I think that's a stretch. But I would not doubt that you couldn't find some people that claim to be Christians who would question whether Jesus is God. The point being is that when people don't have a fixed point of truth, then they become vulnerable to all kinds of ideas. And the reason why people at some point abandon the faith is because at some point they can't, they're can not they not convinced of the reality of what the Bible claims. So whether all this is true or not isn't the point. The issue is this is what happens in people's lives at some point that when they get to a point where they're sort of laying down life decisions and trying to figure out what's going on or they're afflicted by this or they're being persecuted or challenged by it and they don't have all the answers, they're not sure. If it's never been a deep-rooted conviction of their life, they're done. Now, here's the part that concerns me. I'm going to pull up a slide that I used last week about the nature of this parable. There is only one soil that we are told that was good soil, and literally the statement is there's only one soil where people actually heard and accepted the truth, the word. These other three are all variations of the human turmoil of not hearing and understanding it. Because if you might say, well they actually received it and so that means they're Christians, they're just sort of flopping around on following through on it. That's a possibility. But the the focus and the, the feel of the text says, there's only one soil where people actually hear, understand and accept it, where it takes root in their life because it produces a crop, it changes things. The rest of these three are just thrashing around but they're not getting it now i know that's going to raise a bucket full of questions but but the but the problem is is that there's lots of people who fill churches who are struggling with the reality that these aren't deep-rooted convictions they're just sort of ideas and i'm okay with them but i you know i haven't personally really bought into them i'm still waiting for the evidence to show up i need more proof and Jesus got, has to give it to me in more tangible ways, or I'm just not there. Yeah, I don't mind going to church. I don't mind hanging out with groups, and they're nice people and that kind of stuff. But if someone really cracked open my heart and looked at the reality of my heart, I struggle with this. So, what does that mean for you and me? I want to propose to you that one of the most important realities of our own walk with Jesus is that I know we have the doctrine of eternal security, and I'm a firm advocate of it. But please don't allow that magnificent truth to lull you into negligence and apathy and indifference. Because what I believe happens here is these people, remember Jesus is going to the Jews who've heard God's word and his prophets, they've communicated to them time and time again all the reality of God's word and they've just hardened their heart to the reality of it. In fact, that's what Jesus says is the point of the parables. Those who have will be given more, but those who have think they have some of it, they're gonna, it's going to be taken away from them because they don't really have it. It's just a nice little cute thought that they have in their head. They know the stuff, but it's not a deep, deep-rooted conviction on the way they're going to live. And I want to propose to you that we need to be continually cultivating the soil in our own lives to keep affirming the value of the gospel, and nobody else can do it for you. Because we live in a world that I believe that if we get too distracted by the chaos and the criticism and, the, and all the collateral damage that's going on, whether it's professors who fail or public figures who fail, or whether whatever it happens to be, we have to look after our own heart. We have to make sure that we humbly are before the throne of grace Because there is always, even as Hebrews chapter 3 says, encourage one another day after day as long as it's called today. Why? Lest anyone be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So there's a sense that every one of us are vulnerable. And we have to make sure that we're cultivating this soil as it were so that the word of God Takes root in our heart, in our soul, in our mind, and it produces life. Don't try to manufacture realities to accommodate your doubts, anxieties, and fears. Allow what you know to, to rest in the or to be a haven of rest for the things that you don't understand. It's okay to be honest about things like, I don't get this. This doesn't make sense to me. But we always have to rest on the foundation of what we do know from the scriptures to be our haven and our rest for the things that we don't answer and remember, as I put it in this next one, if God's truth does not become deeply rooted in your own heart, then you are vulnerable to following away. learn to be comfortable with not knowing everything. I run into people all the time that if we don't have an answer for every little question we have, then Christianity must be stupid and false. Now, they may, not, they may push back on that with people making that accusation, but sometimes that's exactly the turmoil in their own heart. Hey, I get all this, and I love this. This one thing is just bugging me to death, and I need it resolved, or I think the whole thing is going down. I ask a question each time I do this, and it's simply this. What does it take for God to get your attention? Do you know that I would like to think even this morning he's speaking to you? As he speaks to me and the question is is the the seed of any of this truth is it taking root in your heart and producing life? Because the danger is, is if our heart is rocky we'll hear the truth I'll get people to say, that was a really good message this morning, which I appreciate the encouragement, I do, but I've always got this evil twin that wants to say, yeah, so what was good about it? And what does God want you to do with it? Because the Christian life can't be this thing where we're just running around patting each other on the back and making ourselves feel good. It has to be the reality of the power of the gospel transforming broken human beings so that they have everything they have for life and godliness and we live our life to the honor and the glory of Jesus Christ. How's your heart this morning? When was the last time you can tell me that here's a truth that God spoke to me last week and man, I'm giving all my attention to this because he's changing the way I think and he's changing my values and. I've actually changed some of my behaviors and habits because I know I need to realign my life with what God says I need to be doing. The scariest thing in the world is to ask a person, what's God doing in your life? And they have to go back 15, 20 years to give you an answer. We can't afford to be that kind of person. Pray with me if you will because they would just simply not let go of their own worldview and what they controlled to surrender to the reality of the message of Jesus. We live in a world that it may be unseen but not unfelt that we are in a spiritual battle for our very lives. That every time we hear the word, we know that we've got an adversary and yet the danger isn't so much we have an adversary, but it's, there's a danger that maybe we've, our heart is more like a pathway than it is about good soil. And so we ask that you will help us allow your spirit to do the necessary things in our own heart so that our, the, the soil of our heart is good soil so that something fruitful comes when we rub shoulders with the truth of your word. God forbid and help us not to be hearers only. So in our feebleness and in our weakness,